At this time in history, Hezekiah and the people of Judah are faced with a crisis that is literally camped right outside their city walls. Assyria, the most dominant world power at this time, stands poised to attack Jerusalem, just as it had done to all the out other outlining towns in Judah. Hezekiah, the southern king of Judah, has seen what Assyria is capable of, and he wants no part of them. So Hezekiah tries to buy him off. He tries to buy off Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, offering to pay 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold, which amounts to about 40 to $50 million in today's money, if he would just go away. Hezekiah is desperate to save his people from what would surely be inevitable defeat, and it seems that he's even more desperate to come up with the money, so much so that in 2 Kings 18, verse 16, it records for us that he stripped off the gold that covered the doors and the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Sennacherib accepted the money and in an act of betrayal, decided that he was gonna conquer Jerusalem anyway. So confident is the Assyrian king of Jerusalem's defeat that he doesn't even bother to travel to the Judas capital, deciding instead to stay, remain camped in Lachish some 40 to 50 miles away. He sends to do the job as field commander, Rabshakeh, who immediately begins to unleash what can be described as psychological warfare upon the Hebrew capital, taunting and mocking Hezekiah and his God. The field commander's goal is to hasten Jerusalem's surrender by wearing them down with a verbal attack. He asks Hezekiah in verse 20, on whom are you depending? Your alliance with Egypt won't help, verse 21. Leaning on them is like leaning on the splintered reed of a staff, in other words, you're only gonna make things worse for yourself by leaning on Egypt. In verses 23 to 25, his taunts go from taunting their army and their cities to taunting their God. Rabshakeh tells them that God himself sent them there to march against Jerusalem. He sent us here. The God that you trust, the God that you worship, sent us here. He's working for our interest, not for your interest. He's on our side not on your side. You can imagine the doubt and the worry that would creep into the hearts of the Hebrew people upon hearing that the God that they had recently realigned their lives to is now working for the enemy. The taunts were so blasphemous and upsetting that Eliakim, part of Hezekiah's emissary team, tries to persuade Rabshakeh to speak Aramaic instead of Hebrew so that the common soldiers protecting the walls would not understand his words. But the field commander, he has no regard for Eliakim's plea. He has no regard for the soldiers on the wall, no regards for Hezekiah, and no regards for his God. In verse 27, he arrogantly says that his message is not only for the king and the priests, his message is for all who are doomed to eat their own filth and drink their own urine. Now, aside from having a way with words, Rabshakeh is saying to Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, that this is what you're gonna get if you rely on Hezekiah, rely on Egypt, or rely on your God. He's saying, look at how all the other nations ended up. Look at how their gods ended up. Our God, the God of Assyria, has proven to be superior to all the other gods. And the proof is that we're camped right out here outside your city walls. The proof is in the destruction that we left behind. The proof is in the plunder that we've gathered from other nations. The proof is in the captives that we led by their noses to Assyria. Your God won't be able to help you just as their God wasn't able to help them. 
There's no hope for you. You should give up, surrender, he tells them. Your gold and your silver is gone. The dignity of your king is gone. The trust in your alliance with Egypt is gone. And the honor of your God is gone. Everything that you place your trust in is gone. Saints, what we see in 2 Kings 18 is the people trusting in their own strength and the ways of the world before trusting in their own God. Then what we see is God's divine hand removing from them every avenue of rescue until the only thing that they have left is the grace of God. It is this hopeless situation that is the backdrop for the prophet Isaiah's oracle in Isaiah 33, 1 through 6. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for your presence this morning. I pray that you would remove all distractions from our minds this morning and that you would provide us with attentive ears to hear your spoken word. I pray that your word would be profitable to our ears and an encouragement to our hearts and that you would be exalted here this morning. Amen. Please turn to Isaiah 33, 1 through 6, and we'll read through God's words together. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you've ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed, and when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as a caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is left upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of our times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. There are going to be four points that, I will, that will inform our time together this morning. I'll say them twice for the note takers. Uh, point number one is God's sovereignty and timing. Point number two, Isaiah's prayer and God's grace. Point number three, God's power. And point number four, God's promise of future blessing. Point one, God's sovereignty and timing. Point two, Isaiah's prayer and God's grace. Point three, God's power. And point four, God's promise of future blessing. First, let's look at God's sovereignty and timing in verse one. Ah, you destroyer, you yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Although they haven't been mentioned by name, God through the prophet Isaiah is telling Hezekiah and the people of Judah that the, the Assyrians, their most imminent threat, is going to be destroyed. Now this prophecy must have been an amazing thing to hear, not just because of its content, the destruction of Assyria, but because of its timing as well. This would have been an astounding revelation to the ears of Jerusalem. If there were any doubters in the room when this prophecy was spoken by Isaiah, I'm pretty sure that they would have looked at each other and thought, are you sure about that? Like, they're right outside the walls right, right now. You can come over here and look. Yet God is telling Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem that in spite of what they see and in spite of what appears to be sure defeat, 
this destructive force, this mighty ruthless army, will be defeated. Notice that verse 1 starts with the word ah. A better word found in other scripture translation is the word woe. It's sort of like a, the opposite of a blessing and more like a spoken curse against Assyria. You'll also notice that this woe or curse is addressed directly to the destroyer, the, the Assyrians. And this stands, out a bit this stands out a bit because prior to this prophecy, Isaiah had made five other prophecies that also began with the word woe. And all five of those prophecies were condemning Israel. What we see when we read those five woes is God denouncing his people for their unfaithfulness and willful blindness to the covenant that they made with their God. And it would be worth your time to go back after the sermon to read those, the six woes of Isaiah beginning in Isaiah 28 and ending in Isaiah 33. I think it would bring good color and texture to the verses that we're unpacking here this morning. But Isaiah's final condemnation, his final woe, the woe in verse 1 is different because it addresses the enemy directly. The enemy that sits right outside the city walls, poised to either attack or to take God's remnant as slaves. Notice that he also calls Assyria a traitor whom none has betrayed, saying, quote, when you finish betraying, they will betray you, end quote. Recall that Hezekiah had an agreement with Sennacherib that he would not attack if he was paid a tribute. But Sennacherib, in a treacherous betrayal, took the money and decided that he was going to betray Jerusalem anyway. This is the betrayal that is referenced in this passage. When you cease to betray, you will be betrayed. When you cease to destroy, you will be destroyed. It seems that the Assyrians have Hezekiah right where they want him, and yet God is saying, not so fast. I'm going to destroy them. Just you wait and see. But why now? Why is God dispensing his justice on the Assyrians at this time? Why, after five woes or condemnations spoken over his people, is God deciding to confront the enemy now? God could have done it at any time before Assyria reached the city gates. It certainly would have spared the people of Jerusalem a considerable amount of angst and worry. Why now? One reason might be is that God has finished using Assyria for his purposes. Assyria is God's tool, his instrument. If you look back at Isaiah chapter 10, God called Assyria my rod and my axe. Assyria, as powerful as they are, is merely a tool for doing God's work. God is saying to Assyria that as soon as you've done everything that I've purposed for you to do, I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to put you away like I would a tool. So according to God's sovereign plan, the betrayer is going to be betrayed and the destroyer is going to be destroyed. Saints, we need to be reminded again and again and again that God is sovereign over all things. Not only that, that God is faithful to his remnant. Why do we need to be reminded? Because we're no different from the Hebrew nation of Scripture. We're prone to forget what God has done for us and what he promises to do for us in the future. We need to be reminded of this truth every day because we live in a broken world that reflects sin and violence every day. We need to be reminded that the hand that upholds the universe by the power of his word is at work even when we can't see it. So when we're bombarded by images of our nation's capital being swarmed upon by misguided 
resurrectionists as we did a little bit more than a month ago, we know, God's people know, that God's in control. And he will direct these and all things for his good. The same principle applies in our personal life. I recently spoke on the phone with a friend, um, and I was asking him about a, a mutual friend, the daughter of a mutual friend, whose life has been um, upended by uh, cancer. Uh, cancer has invaded her lungs, it has invaded her organs, um, severely altering the trajectory of her life, trajectory of her career. She's undergone chemo, she's undergone um, radiation, and at this point, her medical bills are upwards of $3 million after only three years. In circumstances like this, maybe you catch yourself wondering, is God's providential plan at work even when things like this happen? And the answer is yes. God is sovereign even in the midst of personal tragedy and misfortune. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink helps us to think through this understanding by writing, the providence of God encompasses all things, not only the good, but also sin and suffering, sorrow and death. It would be an impoverished faith that only saw God's hand in counsel, in momentous, miraculous, and good things, but not in the ordinary, the seemingly insignificant and painful. God's divine hand encompasses all things. God's always working for our good, he sees the iniquities and the injustices of the world. He sees the circumstances and trajectories of our lives. He hasn't forgotten us, and he's not dismissive of our suffering or our pain. Nothing escapes God's notice. We only need to look at the cross as proof of God's willingness to answer mankind's pleas for rescue. Jesus offered up his life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and he rose again victorious over sin and death. And he ascended into heaven, where at the Father's right hand, he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Saints, God's invisible hand is always at work, even when it seems to us like God is not present or doesn't care. His timing is always right. Once the circumstances of our lives have served his good purposes, he will put it away, whether it's in this life or in the age to come, but not a moment sooner. The reminder for you and for me is that we need to rely on God on his terms and place our faith in his timing. The time for Assyria had come. God is going to destroy the destroyer. He's done using his axe and his rod. Assyria has served God's purposes and justice will be rendered. Point one, we looked at God's sovereignty and timing. Look now at Isaiah 33, verse 2, where we see, point two, Isaiah's prayer and God's grace. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in times of trouble. Notice that verse 2 begins with O Lord, spelled out in caps. In the Old Testament, when you come across the word Lord, spelled out in caps, you're viewing the proper name of God, Yahweh which pertains to God's covenantal promise and faithfulness to his people. There's no doubt that Isaiah is evoking this language to help the people remember that God has a history of saving his people, even when they're rebellious and stubborn. Isaiah is saying, saying, praying to God to be gracious with his people because he knows that it's only through the grace of God that they will be rescued. 
The Hebrew people have tried everything else. They've exhausted all other options and are now crying out to the Lord for deliverance. They tried using their own ingenuity, fortifying the city against attack and channeling the water of the city to, to run into the city. They tried using their own power, raising up an army and positioning the men on the walls. They relied on the world by making an alliance with Egypt for their protection. And they relied on their wealth by trying to make the problem go away. When you really think about it, all of these plans actually sound reasonable and sensible. But what's missing? What didn't they do? What does God want us to do in times of trouble? Go to him. Go to God and pray that his grace would be poured out on you. The people of Judah made God the God of last resort, marginalizing his presence in their lives. And if we're honest with ourselves, it probably sounds a lot like what we do at times. Are we that different from the people of Judah? Do we turn to the world for help before we seek God's grace? Do we marginalize God in our lives? I can't answer that question for you, but I know that the sin of self-reliance is one that I need to constantly work on. I can easily fool myself into thinking that I have all the right answers. But what about you? Do you make the Lord the God of last resort? We see in verse 2 that self-reliance always fails and that it's only through God's grace that we're able to get through the day. God, in his infinite wisdom, removed from the people of Judah all other options. So they turned to the only response that was left for them. They cried out to the Lord for his grace to carry them in their time of trouble. Verse 2 instructs us on what we're to do after we pray. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. We wait. Pray for God's grace and wait. This is what God wants us to do. Waiting expectantly demonstrates a posture of faith. This helps us to build a relationship with our Lord that goes beyond just wanting a savior. God's not a rabbit's foot that you can carry in your back pocket and pull out when you're in need of good luck. He's so much more than that. And I'm sure that there are a lot of three-legged rabbits running out there that will tell you the same thing. It didn't work out so well for them, and it's not going to work out so well for you. Take a look again at the rest of verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. Isaiah's prayer asks God to be the strength and salvation of his people every morning. Why? Because as sinners in a sin-cursed world, every morning is the time of trouble. There's no morning when we wake up when we aren't faced with trouble and in need of his grace and salvation. The devil's always ready to place his snares and deep pits in our path. So we need fresh grace and fresh mercy every morning to make it through the day. We're dependent on God's power as well as his grace. But we're not praying to God simply to make us stronger in order to face the troubles of the day. We're praying to God expectantly, faithfully, and earnestly so that we might lean on him and his power during times of trouble. Psalm 44.3 echoes this understanding, saying, For not by his own sword did they win the land, 
nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. God delights in the fact that you rely on his grace and mercy. He delights in the fact that you wait for him confidently to hear from him. Remember that in the context of these verses, Isaiah is saying to Hezekiah and the people of Judah that they should pray and wait for God's grace as the Assyrians literally sit right outside the walls of Jerusalem. But this is what faithful prayer looks like. This is what God wants us, wants us to do. This is how he wants us to relate to him. Pray with a heart expecting your prayer to be, pray with your heart expecting your prayer to be answered and then wait confidently for his reply. Isaiah's prayer continues and further displays God's awesome power. Look at verses three and four. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is, is gathered as the caterpillars gather, as locusts leap, it is left upon. We see that God is now acting on behalf of his people. He has heard their cries and is now revealing the glory of his power by stretching out his mighty arm to save them. We're given a vivid image of how God's enemies react to his power. They scatter and they flee. There's nowhere to hide from God's power when he's enacting his judgment. And God was ready to save his people. We see that God's power has no measure. His power has no limits. It's the same power imputed to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has the power to transform the lives of sinners so that anyone who confesses with their mouths that they are sinners and places their faith in him will be redeemed. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you make his death be your death and his resurrection be your resurrection, he promises to wipe away every tear from your eyes and take away the sting of death. There will neither be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will be put away. Friends, he will draw you near and take away your sins. He's already done the work for us. He drank from the cup and he shed his blood on the cross for us because of his love for us. That means that for you and for me and everyone who placed their faith in Christ, that we have assurances of salvation. Because of God's great mercy, grace, and love, all of us that are in Christ have a place reserved in his eternal kingdom. To anyone that might be a non-believer, I pray that this understanding of Jesus' transformational power invites you to make today be the day that you come to Christ. His great grace and mercy extends to you as well. All you have to do is repent and declare your faith in Christ. I would urge you not to put it off and either come speak to me or one of the elders if you want to know more about what it means to be part of God's kingdom or moved by the spirit to pick up your cross and follow him. We would love to have that conversation. I would imagine that anyone in this con uh, congregation would love to have that con conversation. All God has to do is flinch and his enemies fall. In Isaiah 33, verse 4, you see that mighty Assyria is now going to be plundered by God, just as they had plundered other nations. The images of caterpillars and locusts is one of total destruction. There's nothing left. Their spoils presumably gathered by their enemies or Judah itself. Friends, when God's ready to act, there's nothing that can stand in his way. 
All he has to do is lift himself up, and all opposition that is in the way of his purposes will be scattered and destroyed. The destroyers will be destroyed. We see God's power in full display, and we see what results from the splendor of his power. Notice that after God acts on behalf of his people, he also provides them with hope. Point four, the promise of future blessing. Please read with me verses five and six. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. The defeat and destruction of Assyria would certainly be a reason to exert the Lord and acknowledge the high place that is his rightful place. God is exalted through our prayers, and in this case, he's exalted through Isaiah's prayer and the promise of destruction of, destruction of Judah's enemy. When you pray, you see the Lord exalted because, you're, because your heart and your eyes are on the Lord. However, if your heart never leaves your sin, then you're going to be prone to return to that sin. When your eyes are lifted above, uh, above your problems and above the reaches of your worldly resources, then you're going to know God's strength and his salvation. This is what God did for Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, reminding them that their salvation comes from God and only from God. It's a recurring theme that we see in Scripture. This is one of my favorite verses. I've used it before. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Verses 5 and 6 also reveal that it's a messianic, messianic prophecy. Uh, as Pastor Raymond is fond of saying, uh, careful readers will notice that. Isaiah is not only foretelling about the destruction of Judah's enemy and the resulting exaltation of the Lord, he is foretelling of the future Messiah that is to come that is justice and is righteousness of Zion. The key words for us are justice and righteousness. We see this more clearly in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. It reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness. Isaiah is prophesying, prophesying about an incarnate justice and an incarnate righteousness that will one day walk among us. The word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. Why? so he could be the savior for mankind, so that he could be the justice and righteousness of this world. Mankind had failed to fulfill God's law, so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the law on our behalf. He knew that because of our sin-filled hearts, we were incapable and unqualified to fulfill it. He sent his son to sacrifice his life and shed his purifying blood for our sin to die a death that we deserved so that he could be redeemed so that we could be redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God, through the prophet Isaiah, wants Judah to, to understand not just what God has saved them from, but also what God has saved them to. So he provides them and us with the promise of a future blessing. He's saying that I've rescued you now, but my grace extends far beyond this moment, far far beyond this specific predicament. Imagine if that wasn't the case. 
Imagine how you would feel the next time you had a life crisis and you didn't know that God was going to be there for you. No doubt that you would be filled with anxiety and worry. You'd be wondering things like, I, I know that God was there for me this time, but will he be there for me the next time? Did God even hear my prayer? God doesn't do that. He's gracious and faithful to his people, even when we're not always gracious and faithful to him. God is always the oath keeper that never breaks his promises. And it is because of these promises and assurances that all doubt is removed. One scholar summed it up this way. Accepting the gift of eternal life means that our hope is no longer filled with doubt, but rather has its, as its sure foundation the whole of God's word, the entirety of God's character and the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see in verses 5 and 6 that justice and righteousness lead to future blessings. Let me read this for us again. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion and justice with righteousness and will be the stability of our times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. If you're a believer, your heart has already been filled with the justice and righteousness that is Christ Jesus in us. It has been knitted into your heart from the moment that you place your faith in Christ. Look at the wonderful blessings that flow from this faith. God is saying to us that he will be our stability through all chaotic and unstable times. He will be the solid foundation on which we can stand. Our knees will not buckle and our legs will not sink into the unstable sand of this world because Jesus is our immovable rock and our refuge. Friends, I know that this season has been especially difficult for you as it has been for me. Loneliness and depression abounds. We've been challenged by a pandemic that makes relational contact, even with those that we love the most, an endeavor of caution and uncertainty. COVID threatens how we at Christ Church Westchester provide service and has cast its shadowy hands on our etiquette for personal contact and fellowship. But in spite of this, in spite of all this, Jesus is calling us to him and telling us that he's going to be our stability the stability of our times. Our times meaning in the past, right now, and in the future. We're living in a time where we've seen all our routines kind of stripped away from us. Routines and activities that through the grace of God really provided us with a sense of stability. Visiting with friends, enjoying a fellowship meal, getting together for movie night or game night, meeting unencumbered for life group, we're simply being able to reach out and hug someone in a joyful greeting. It has been hard. Uh, many of you might recall that about this time last year, we were eating cake together and celebrating Pastor Raymond's fifth year as pastor of this church. I remember the, the speeches that were being given. I remember the taste of the cake. But most of all, I remember the joy that filled our hearts that day. It has been a difficult season indeed. In his divine plan, God removed from Hezekiah and Judah all worldly options from their choice menu. But it led them to a treasure that was, that was always accessible to them, a fear of the Lord. We see in verse 6 
that fear of the Lord leads to an abundance of salvation. Not just a little, but an overflow of salvation that could last until the second coming. God also promises his wisdom and his knowledge, but the fear of the Lord is a treasure chest from which all blessings flow. If you have a reverent understanding of who God is, then you're going to have access to this promise of hope and future blessings. These blessings will sustain you and hold you, and more importantly, allow you to do the same for someone that needs it. We might look at the world and be tempted to set our eyes on its glitter, wealth and comfort, prestige, power, influence. Yet God is telling us that the riches of this world are a fool's gold, that he is our treasure, understanding who he is. Hezekiah may, be, may have been able to strip the gold off the temple walls and the pillars of the temple, but the world can't strip you of the fear of God. COVID can't strip you of the fear of the Lord. Politics can't strip you of the fear of the Lord. Social unrest can't strip you of the fear of the Lord. He is our gold and our silver. He is our treasure. Without Jesus in our lives, we have nothing. We will have nothing but a straight path to hell. And if that is our path, to quote Pastor Raymond from a few weeks ago, it would be better that you were never born. Isaiah 33, 1 through 6 is instructing us on what all of Scripture tells us over and over again. God is faithful. God delivers. God acts on our behalf. And God will never, ever, ever leave you without hope. Proverbs 1, verse 7 is a first that's probably familiar to most of us, tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Until we understand who God is and develop a reverential fear of him, we cannot and will not have true wisdom. True wisdom comes from understanding who God is and understanding that he is holy, 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 that he is just and righteous. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 records for us what our heart posture should be. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with your heart and all your soul? Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, 21. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Fear of God is our foundational treasure for walking in his ways, serving him, and also for loving him. Must be our treasure if we want stability in our lives. This is our roadmap for finding it. This is what we must value. It's the catalyst for everything good in our lives. And yet, how many of us live like it's our utmost desire, like it's our utmost pursuit? How many things need to be stripped away from us before we come to the same understanding that the people of Judah came to, that their treasure is the fear of the Lord? Jesus spent a considerable amount of time during the Sermon on the Mount teaching the people about the differences between earthly treasure and heavenly treasure, warning them in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, not to store up for themselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but to store up for themselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Saints, it's easy to get entangled in the snares of this world, to fall into the deep pits of our own understanding. We need to frequently examine ourselves. We need to persist persistently conduct a heart audit and ask ourselves hard questions. Where's your treasure? Where's your heart? Is it intertwined in the politics of this world, in the rights of this world, in the conversations of this world? Jesus warned us that earthly currency has an expiration date. Proverbs 2, verses 4 to 5 remind us that if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Saints, may it be our desire, may it be our pursuit, and may it be our heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are our praise and our treasure. We thank you for your presence in our lives and the great mercy and grace and love that you pour out on us every day. We thank you for being our daily salvation and strength, for being a faithful God, and for being the stability in our lives in times of trouble. Lord, I pray that you would protect and bless this body that loves you. Amen. <laughs>